0: So hey, uh, I don't know if it was a month or six weeks ago, whenever, uh, last time I spoke, we started in the book of 1 John. And uh, as I've been kind of looking at 1 John, I've been realizing there's, there's this interesting thing about 1 John. He speaks in these really great, tender terms that feel so wonderful. Beloved, my little children. And then he smacks us with truth and smacks us with tests and then he and then he comes back to the terms of endearment, my beloved, and smacks us with truth. Not always comfortable, but an incredibly powerful book, a book that will remind us, will challenge us, will remind us, will give us assurances of our salvation. So in First John chapter 1, he laid out some really important doctrine stuff. He laid out the deity and the humanity of Christ, that Jesus was fully man and fully God while he walked on this earth. And he carried on and he talked about the idea that, that we are to have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And we kind of talked about the idea of being in a three-legged race with Jesus Christ and with one another as we move ahead in our spiritual lives. We also talked about that God is light and in him there's no darkness. And the idea, and and John hits us about sin in our lives and the idea of sin is missing the mark. And he, he hits us about that. He says, he's. Convicts us, in what is our practice? Are we practicing walking in darkness? Are we practicing walking in that warm, revealing light? I love the imagery of light, because you know, light it, it casts out the shadows, casts out the darkness, but it also reveals our flaws. It's revealing. There's nothing like shining a bright light on something to see all the flaws. And it leaves us raw before the Lord. So he talked about walking in the light. And then he reminded us that we are never without sin. The last verse in chapter 1 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not within us. But I love the preceding verse. Verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He takes away our, our junk and our unrighteousness, our dirtiness, and he washes us with the blood of Jesus Christ and imputes his righteousness on us. So when he looks at us, he looks at us through the veil of Jesus Christ. So much hope. And we, then we get into where, we're, where we'll be looking today. We'll be looking at the first half-ish of chapter 2. And he starts out right after he says, if we say we have not sinned, we may come a liar and his word is not in us. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So he has this term of endearment. He starts this chapter off, this paragraph. I mean, we put the chapter and verse Marks in later, right? But he starts this paragraph off. He says, my little children. It's a letter from a father to his kids. He says, I want you to know this truth. This is important. I love you guys. That's what he's sharing. And I love what he's, and, he's, and the intent of this portion of the letter is so that we may not sin, so we may not miss the mark. But we know that we all sin. We've all fall, sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I love how he says he is the propitiation for our sins. And That's a, a, a word that we don't always, doesn't always fully register in our minds. It's, it's, it's maybe a little bit of an old English word. But the idea is, is that it's an atoning sacrifice. That the payment has been paid. When we talk about that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, we're talking that God has taken the wrath and put it on Jesus Christ, and he has fully fulfilled it. The work he did on the cross is finished. It's complete. It's a complete, utter atonement for everything that I've done, past, present, and future. You know, the power of the cross, the completed work on the cross, is, is said it in the last half of verse two. He says, not only, we talking about the sin that's been taken care of, not only of your sin or my sin, our sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's not saying universal salvation, but what he is saying is he's saying that that work on the cross was big enough for every sin ever committed. That Jesus, as being fully God on the cross, fully man, he took on the weight of the burden of the sins of the world. He has atoned God's wrath. So when we think of the propitiation that he's, our atoning sacrifice, that he has satisfied God's need for payment for what I have done and for what you have done. And then we back up and we finish off verse one. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, that word advocate is the same idea that we get the word lawyer from. Advocate, lawyer, sometimes they're almost, they're interchanged, aren't they? It's also the same word that's used often in our New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit as he convicts the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. But what I love about this image of the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is just imagine for a minute a courtroom. We have a courtroom and sit in on the, you know, I, I don't know a lot about court except from what I see on TV, so bear with me. So... Um, At the judge's bench, we got the righteous, perfect, righteous judge, God the Father. And you and I, we are in the defendant box. And we have an advocate. Those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ have Jesus as our lawyer. He's standing there beside us. What's interesting, though, is Revelation tells us that Satan is always constantly accusing. He's the the accuser. So we got Satan accusing. We got me, I'm not worthy to stand before God. I have Jesus, the propitiation. He's already paid the penalty for my sin. And I have God, the righteous judge on the throne. The charges are, are read out. Brian, charged with, Blank, 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 blank. Missed the mark. In fact, when I picked up the bow and arrow, I went to pull it and I dropped the arrow and it just about got me in the toe. That's how badly I missed the mark. Or when I tried real hard, I shot right past. <laughs> Completely missed the mark. You know what's really different about Jesus Christ as our defense lawyer? I think of defense lawyers and and I'm, we're talking, this is like criminal law that we're talking about because we are, we're worthy of nothing. We're worthy of penalty. So in criminal law, when I think of a defense lawyer, I think of a shady dude. I think of a guy that you go in there and say, you know, I did this. Can you get me off? Can you get me off? So what does a defense lawyer do in our, our lives, or at least if I'm watching on TV? They see doubt. What are we looking for in our judicial, judicial system? Reasonable doubt. Maybe they can come up with a drum up, an alternate plausible story that c- could have happened. Enough to cede doubt. That's not what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ says, you know what, this man is Guilty. He is guilty, is charged. And you may think, what kind of defense lawyer is this? We have an incredible defense lawyer because when the gavel drops, we are guilty of the sin that we've done. But when sentencing comes, our advocate says, I have paid the penalty already. God, my dad, his dad, says, I have paid for this one. I've paid the price. I've washed him clean, washed her clean in my blood. I have atoned for all that he or she has already done. That is what Jesus does for us in the courtroom. And we talk that Jesus' propitiation for our sins is big enough for the sins of the whole world. It is. But there's an interesting thing. We know that we must turn to Jesus Christ in faith, must we not? He becomes our advocate when we trust in him. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, I am on his docket as one of his clients. A client who's been bought and paid for. Absolutely, fully paid. It's an incredible mystery. We talked about the mystery of godliness, that Jesus Christ imputes his righteousness, righteousness on us, that he has paid my penalty. And the result is that there should be some follow-up in our lives. If we say that we are in Christ Jesus, there should be some results. There should be some fruit. And that's what John's going to go on to say start out and he said my beloved and he talks about what Jesus has done for us and then he's going to talk about the reflection of, of what our lives should become like And sometimes it smacks because I know I don't measure up verse 3 and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments keep his commandments wow you know that, that word know, and by this we know, when we see that in this, in this chapter, it's that real intimate sense of knowing. It's, it's a similar words that would be used to describe of the intimacy between a husband and wife, that they know each other intimately. By this we know that we have come to know him, that if we keep his commandments, you know, in John fourteen twenty one, it says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I, too, will love him and show myself to him. Verse 4 says, I, <coughs> Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's striking me about my confession and my actions. Do I confess one thing and do another? He calls me a liar when I confess one thing, when I say, I know my Savior in the intimate sense, but when I don't follow him, he, I'm self deceived. It reminds me of chapter 1, verse 6, when, we, when John was talking about our practice. Are we practicing to walk in the light of Christ, or am I practicing to walk in the shadows of the old life in the flesh? Am I trying to go down the dark tunnel? Or am I trying to walk in the revealing light of Christ? Am I speak, trying to speak on m- both sides of my mouth? Is my yes, no, and my no, yes? No, we're called to have our yes be yes and our no is no. It goes on in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. That work perfected, some of your Bibles may translate as completed or matured. It's the idea of brought to completion. That the work that God has begun in our lives, that he brings it to completion as we keep his word, as we stay in his word. When I think of keeping his word, I'm reminded of the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And the instructions to Joshua there is, do not let this book of the law depart from your lips, but rather meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. You know, the idea in Joshua, I think you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as as we, as eating the word of God. You know, that we're, we, we, we take in an intake. We chew it. We keep it in our, you know, it's on our lips as we, we continually feed. And we meditate. We chew it. We digest it. The other way we can, I think it's fair to say, is that it's on our lips that we speak the word of God. That there's a change in our lips. That we take the time to stew and meditate and understand what it means. And put it into action is what he's saying. So you may be careful to do everything written in it. So we can mature and grow. It says, by this we, meet, we know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. You know, the word abide keeps on popping up lately in my quiet times. Uh, it seems like everywhere I go, I see this word abide. And I'm like, what does this mean? Because I used to think of abide as the idea of a, a place that I can rest. A place of rest. Um, you know, a safe place. I think you know. You, sometimes you know, someone to oh, a humble little abode, right? You know that that's their home, that's their safe place. But you know what abide really means? As abide is an active word. Synonyms for abide is to comply with, to obey, to observe, to follow, to keep to, to hold to, to confirm to, stick to, stand by, act in accordance with, uphold, heed, accept, accept. Go along with acknowledge, respect, defer to. When I think of abide, you know, we've probably all gone on gondolas somewheres in our life, haven't we? Uh, you know, I think if you go to Whistler right now, aside from the fact they don't have much snow, they have a gondola. And um, so there's that great big cable that runs up and down the hill, right? And those cars, they come on and off the cable. And I think when we get on the gondola, they're on a secondary track and they're just putting along, barely moving, barely moving, right? So when, we actually, when that thing gets going, what happens? That clamp on the top, it grabs a cable. And it clamps on. And the reality is it's holding on for dear life. Because if that clamp let loose, all of us in the cabin might fall a 1,000 feet and all die. That's kind of what I think of with abiding. Is abiding, is I'm clinging to the cable of Jesus Christ as he is changing me from low elevation to high elevation. As he moves me towards the Lord, I'm clinging to that cable. Yes, there's an element of rest because he's doing the work. He's pulling me up the hill, but I am clinging to him, holding to him, holding fast to him. Resting in his power to drag us up the hill. Because when I think about Jesus and how he walked, that's a pretty tall order. Jesus walked a perfect, sinless life in this world. He had an incredible prayer life, incredible fellowship with the Father. Incredible fellowship to the fellow man. He had love and grace for the sinner. What did he say to the the woman by the well after all the people had turned away? When they recognized that they all had sin, he said, Go sin no more. He didn't pick up the stone, even though he was able to. He was the only man without sin. He had grace. He still hated the sin, though. He said, Go and sin no more. When I think about abiding in Christ, I have to ask myself Has my relationship to my sin changed? Do I harbor sin in my heart? Do I like my sin? Or is, it, or is it changing? Am I growing in the Lord and understanding that He, though I still mess up, though I still trip and fall, I, I want to be in the light that that's not my heart. My heart isn't to go after my sin. My heart is to go after the Lord and come in repentance before the Lord with, with my sin. And I challenge you, and myself, I had to think about this a lot as I was looking at this passage Where's unconfessed sin in my life? Where have I missed the mark? Where have I intentionally missed the mark? You know, the first thing that restores fellowship, that fellowship that was talked about in chapter 1, verse 3, is repentance, 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 is the first step in restoration, restoring our fellowship with God and man. Repentance is that idea of turning direction, changing my path, coming before the Lord. So we ought to abide in Jesus Christ and his word. Verse seven, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is the new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Like, what is going on there? Old commandment, new commandment, old commandment, new commandment. What is the commandment? I read this a couple times, old, new, old, new. It's old, but it's new, but it's new, but it's old. What are we talking about? I start thinking a little bit about what are commandments that we see throughout Scripture, front to back. You know, and I ask myself, is it, you know, Old Testament law? Is it moral law? Is it my sin? You know, moral law, sin, sin relationship? But the reality is, is even back in Deuteronomy, when the law was being handed out, chapter five, verses five and six says, Hear O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. In Deuteronomy, in the beginning of the law, it was love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's an old commandment. That's an old commandment to us. That's like, you know, 5,000 years old or something like that. And then I remind of Matthew 22 when the Pharisees cornered Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What does that remind you of? Deuteronomy. That is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. It's a commandment to love our God and love one another. John 13 34, Jesus speaking again, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, there's something really cool about love. We'll see it eventually when we get to chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. It says, for there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears... Has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You know, I was thinking about this whole love thing because I'm a man and I'm not Mr. Gushy. How am I? My wife's smiling. You know, sometimes we think of love as an emotion, don't we? That's how our society often talks about love. It's this emotional deal. Either that or we use it flippantly. I love my iPhone. The reality is, is I keep on being reminded that in Scripture, love is displayed in obedience, which challenges my heart. I'm also reminded of very wise words I heard from a man one time, a man who used to be part of this church before they moved away, and he said to me in regards to his relationship to his wife, he said, "You know, we haven't always had an easy marriage," he said. We said, every morning I wake up and I choose to love my wife. Whether I feel like I love my wife that day, and emotionally or not, I choose, I decide. I have de- it's like we're saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided I'm going to walk in his love. There's a really important thing that we cannot miss about love. And it was really made I don't know, reaffirmed my life uh, two weekends ago at the men's conference. The speaker, his second message was titled, Do We Have a Sin Problem or Do We Have a Love Problem? And I expected to hear the typical um, beat up on guys about our sin issues, you know, um, where's our eyes, where's our, all that stuff, right? You know what he camped on? He camped on Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love to us this way, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He implored us to seek out and understand the love that God has extended to us before we ever try to reciprocate that love to anyone else. And I think it's an incredible and important point when we talk about Love and how it shows itself. This new commandment and old commandment is that we understand that we can only love because God has loved us. Because he sent Jesus to be a propitiation, to be that atoning sacrifice, and because his son is our advocate. We can't forget We love because he first loved us. So it's an old commandment to love. It's a new commandment to love. That word "new" there, actually, if you look in the Greek, it can be translated as fresh or renewed. An old commandment that's been renewed. Think of it as originally laid out that God laid it out in the Old Testament. Jesus refreshed it. John refreshed it once again for us. We're to love one another. You know, I, I think a little bit about even we've been going through First Timothy, right? And there's been this theme of gospel-shaped living, how has the gospel shape, how does the gospel shape our lives? And I know that in my heart, I can, I can only change my behavior can only change when I understand what God has done for me, that He laid down his life for me. There's something super cool about this. The last half of verse eight says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You know, we have so much hope in that the light is shining in. When we understand the love that God has given us and we open our hearts to the love that God has shown to us on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, he shines that light in and it warms us and it casts out the shadows. Maybe it's revealing. Maybe it's revealing. Maybe it means that I can't hide my dark corner anymore. But the light is shining in for those of us that know Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we get verse 9 through 11. And you know, Paul, uh, John, he just keeps on hitting us with all these tests. And he goes on and says, Whoever says he is in the light now, so we're talking, whoever, those of us that we claim and we. Confess that Jesus is our Lord. And still hates our brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But what it, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, John's like super frank here. Super clear. There's, uh, you know... I don't know how much commentary you can, you can say on that. He is super clear. Where are we abiding? If we say we're abiding in the light, we should be showing love for our brothers. I have to ask myself, am I harboring hatred for fellow believers in my heart? Has someone wronged me in the past that I haven't forgiven? I also have to ask myself, am I guilty of indifference? Thinking when I was thinking about it, my indifference, in a way, is maybe, maybe not this direct hatred, but kind of an indirect hatred.
1: Lord, challenge me on
0: that. My indifference. I want to walk in the light. I want to be known as a man who walks in the light. I don't want to be blind and stumbling around, tripping over things and bouncing into walls. I want to walk in that revealing, warming, healing light of Jesus Christ. You know, what's interesting so far in the book of 1 John, um, there's kind of three tests that have been laid out for us. You know, uh, one Bible commentator I was reading about this, uh, he talked about it as a three-legged stool. So far, there's been the test of Doctrine. He started off hitting on the doctrine of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was fully man, he was fully God. The beginning of chapter one. Beginning of chapter two, he talked about that God is the full, propiti- or that Jesus is the full propitiation for our sins, and that he is our advocate. We can never let go of that. He hits us with a test about our morality, our sin nature. Are we walking with the Lord Are we keeping short accounts with God? I struggle with this because, you know, sometimes it's so easy to be prayerless. Sometimes it's so easy to harbor stuff in my heart. And uh, chapter one, verse nine says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he hits us with the love test. Do we understand God's love for us? Do we respond back to God in love and thanksgiving? Or do we harbor hatred and indifference? You know, the reality is, if it's a three-legged stool in our lives, we are unable to stand, we are unable to carry load if we kick out any one of the three legs. We can never, ever let go of the truths of Jesus Christ. We can never start harboring sin and think that we can just get into habitual habits. We can ne- when we start doing that, we, we ignore the price that's been paid. We've been bought with a price. And the love test just kicked me in the pants because I can be so indifferent. If I kick out the leg of love, that stool crashes down. But you know, there's great hope in this. All. I, I don't want to stand here and, and, and feel like... We're getting whipped by the word this morning. So sometimes we need to get a little bit of smack. I know I need to get a little bit of smack. But there's hope in this. We are not perfect. We're still sinners. John told us that in chapter one. He says if we say that we're without sin, we make God a liar. We still sin, we still mess up. But he says that if we confess, we keep short accounts with him. But you know, we, sometimes John is called the apostle of love. What I need to re- remember sometimes is that God, he changed that man. He took him up the ski hill when he ab- and when he abode in him. Because John, James and John were the two guys that, were, that when the Samaritan village you know, uh, turned their backs on Jesus, they said, uh, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? That's John. That's the guy who's writing this letter who's challenging us in regards to our love and our light. The Lord did a work in his life. And for me, that's great hope that the Lord can do a work in my life. I want to be in fellowship with him. I want to be in a good three-legged race with the Lord. So the three, three tests... Now, I love what he's going to carry on and say here because it's going to show that this test is for all of us. We can't say it's just for those of us who have been serving the Lord a long time. Verses 12 through 14 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for my name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John lays out four distinct characteristics of people in our spiritual walk. I don't want to say levels, but it's the idea of, of baby Christians, new Christians, young Christians in our faith, growing Christians, maturing Christians, and people who are have reproduction, they're they're fathers. They've been in the word for a long time. The first group is is in the beginning of verse 12. It's the little children. What is mentioned about this group is that their sins are forgiven. They know that Jesus has paid the price. They have trusted, they have asked Jesus to be their advocate, and he is. And that's what they know, and that's what they cling to. But they're still young in the faith. They can't handle solid food yet. They're on milk. That's it says in 1 Corinthians 3. And then the second distinct group is children. You know, the word used for children and little children is two different words. One has the idea of the infancy, and one has the idea of a child that's a little bit older that can feed themselves a bit. So they're growing. They have a craving. And what's mentioned about these guys is that they know the Father. So they know that Jesus has died for their sins, and they're forgiven. He's their advocate, and they're getting to know the love of the Father. The third distinct group is the young men. And, it, you know, it mentions them in, in verse 13 and 14. It says twice the same thing. It says, very important, when it's twice, we've got to look at it, we've got to think about it. They have overcome the evil one. But it's interesting, it's important. that it says they are strong because the word of God abides or is active in them. These are young men. They're strong. Young men, women. The idea is that they're, they're feeding on solid food, God's word. And by knowing God's word, they're able to overcome the trials and temptations from the Lord. First, or not from the Lord, through with the Lord, the trials and temptations from the evil one. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that no temptation has seized us except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will provide us a way out when we're tempted, and that understanding and knowing God's word will help us when we're tempted. It's the sword of truth. I love when you take the word sword and you drop the S off the front. It's W for word. The word of God. And Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's maturity. These guys are in the battle. They're in the heat of it. You know what? We don't send our babies into war. And we don't send our elderly into the war. We send the young guys. We actually send our prime into war, don't we? We send the young guys. To war when they're strong and mature, but they haven't fully grown in all the wisdom yet. But they're going in and doing the work in the heat of battle by the word of God. And the fourth distinct group is fathers, beginning of verse 13 and beginning of verse 14. And he says the same thing about them You have known me from the beginning. These are people who have known the Lord for years and years and years and years, and they've grown. From being that little kid to be able to feed themselves a little bit to maturity to be able to wage war, wage battle. And now they've grown and they have wisdom and maturity and are able to teach and discern and have the idea of fathers is that they've reproduced, that they can teach. Sometimes we refer to these guy, this group of people as harvest workers. They're still doing the work of the ministry, but they're maybe not quite as fisticuffs. Maybe, but they are there, they are solid, and they have known the Lord forever. But what I love is that for every one of these groups, he said, I have written to you because, I have written to you because, I have written to you because, I have written to you because. It doesn't matter if we are new in the Lord or if we have known the Lord all our lives, we cannot let go of either of these three things. The Jesus, my sin relationship, my love relationship, cannot let go of them. So we grow in our theology or any of that stuff, we can't let go of the basics. Finish off in verses 15 to 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever when he says do not love the world he's not talking about the people of the world we know John 3.16 is the idea of people right? that God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life the idea is the system of the world after the fleeting things of the world the stuff that tempts our eyes that tempts our minds that tempts our pride fills our bellies all of, there's three things here that, we, that he says, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the same three things that Jesus was tempted with. He was tempted with food, the desires of the flesh, keep your tummy full. Desired of the, desires of his eyes, he was offered the kingdoms of the world, everything he as far as his eyes could see. And the pride of life, Jesus was tempted to show off his position, to throw himself off the temple and have the angels come and and grab him and prove that, you know, a a physical thing that people would see angels grabbing him. The pride of life. Some people call it Satan's unholy trinity of how he gets us. Our eyes, our bellies, and our pride. We're to be in the world but not of the world. We're to love the people of the world as God loved and wishes that not one be lost. But not necessarily conform to its systems. I have to watch this. I can get caught up with my, my house, my work, my busyness, my life, getting ahead and forget to love the world, the people of the world, as God did. It's challenging as we come to this passage. I get challenged and rebuked when I read some of these passages because I'm still a sinner. But you know, we have that great high priest, Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews, who intercedes on our behalf. And here in, in 1 John chapter 2, it says he's our advocate, our defense attorney, who's paid our price in heaven and sits in heaven and intercedes for us. This morning, we're going to have communion. And um, I've just been challenged in my heart about sin issues. And you know, we're not to come to the table of communion without searching our hearts. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight: let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'll ask the worship team to come forward. And uh, I encourage you to search your heart. Search where you're harboring sin, whether it's big or little. It's all taken care of at the foot of the cross. Jesus is is our propitiation. He's paid that penalty. He's assumed, he's done the atonement. He's assumed the penalty. I just pray that we would reflect on what Jesus has done. His blood that was spilled that washes away our sin. His body that was broken as he took on our penalty.